0: Cycling isn't just cycling. It can be cycling or cycling or even cycling. Peloton isn't just one thing. We have classes that will ease you in and classes that will make you sweat and a range of instructors so you can find your match. Whatever you're in the mood for, we can get you in the zone. See for yourself with a worry-free 30-day home trial. Visit onepeloton.com home dash trial. Terms apply.
1: Welcome to the Christian Outlook, the weekly radio program that sorts through the issues in our fast-changing world in a way that honors your Christian faith. Sponsored by the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy, I'm Georgine Rice. This week, Mike Johnson of Louisiana, the new Speaker of the House.
2: This Speaker's office is going to be known for decentralizing the power here.
1: The New York Times and other legacy media immediately sought to frame him as some kind of crazy Christian nationalist. Albert Moeller.
0: If he's an extremist, so are those who agree with him, and that
3: means tens of millions of Americans.
1: Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu addresses
3: his nation. The Bible says that there is a time for peace and a time for war. This is a time for war.
1: We'll look at efforts to condemn Israel's war as illegitimate.
4: There's sort of a, a growing sentiment that Israel is a perpetrator rather than a victim.
1: I'm Georgine Rice, and I'm glad to be with you once again. I'm coming to you from the Pacific Northwest and my home station of KPDQ in Portland and live in Seattle on 820 AM, The Word. Catch the stream of my program at kpdq.com, and thanks for joining us. We'll begin in Washington, D.C., and the U.S. House of Representatives, where last Wednesday the GOP selected Mike Johnson of Louisiana as the 56th Speaker of the House. He was a figure, to be candid, that few conservatives knew much about. But the first impression was quite encouraging.
2: In his farewell address, President uh, Reagan uh, explained the secret of his rapport with people, and and I like to paraphrase his explanation all the time. He said, "You know, they call me the great communicator, but I really wasn't that." He said, "I was just communicating great things, and they're the same great things that have guided our nation since its founding." What are those great things? I call them the seven core principles of American conservatism. But let me concede to you all, I think it's really quintessentially. THE CORE PRINCIPLES OF OUR NATION, I boil THEM DOWN TO INDIVIDUAL FREEDOM, LIMITED GOVERNMENT, THE RULE OF LAW, PEACE THROUGH STRENGTH, FISCAL RESPONSIBILITY, FREE MARKETS, AND HUMAN DIGNITY. THOSE, THOSE ARE THE FOUNDATIONS THAT MADE US THE EXTRAORDINARY NATION THAT WE ARE. AND YOU AND I TODAY ARE THE STEWARDS OF THOSE PRINCIPLES. THE THINGS THAT HAVE MADE US THE FREEST, MOST POWERFUL, MOST SUCCESSFUL NATION IN THE HISTORY OF THE WORLD. THE THINGS THAT HAVE MADE US TRULY EXCEPTIONAL. In this time of great crisis, it is our duty to work together, as previous generations of great leaders have, to face these great challenges and solve these great problems. I will conclude with this. The job of the Speaker of the House is to serve the whole body, and I will. But I've made a commitment to my colleagues here that this Speaker's office is going to be known for decentralizing the power here. My office is going to be known for members being more involved and having more influence in our processes and all the major decisions that are made here for predictable processes and regular order. We owe that to the people. That's right. And I want to make this commitment to you, to my colleagues here and on the other side of the aisle as well. My office is going to be known for trust and transparency and accountability, for good stewardship of the people's treasure for the honesty and integrity that is incumbent upon us, all of us, here in the People's House. Our system of government is not a perfect system. It's got a lot of challenges, but it is still the best one in the world, and we have an opportunity to preserve it.
1: It's not surprising, but it's still worth pointing out how quickly elite media was to ring the alarm. Mike Johnson is a Christian. First to the party, Paul Krugman of the New York Times. Here's Albert Moeller from his briefing program.
0: The interesting thing for us to watch right now is that there are many people who believe that the House not only has a speaker, but that it has an extremist, a dangerous man, a representative of the radical right. So who's in panic? Well, for one thing, Paul Krugman of The New York Times, he ran a piece just over the weekend with the headline, the GOP, meaning the Republicans goes full on extremist. On the left, I think there is something very evident, maybe two things evident. Number one, genuine surprise that someone like Mike Johnson could be elected Speaker of the House of Representatives and thus directly in the line of presidential succession and thus able to have simply incredible power over the legislation that does or does not reach the House of Representatives for a vote. It is a massive constitutional office. And there are many on the left who are just waking up to the fact that it's held by an evangelical Christian who turns out to hold to evangelical Christian beliefs, who believes that those beliefs are deeply grounded in Scripture and isn't ashamed to talk about it, nor to make arguments on behalf of those convictions, or in his previous career as an attorney to litigate on behalf of religious liberty, Christian interests, and for that matter, moral issues such as the defense of the unborn and the defense of marriage is the union of a man and a woman. Many people on the left are simply waking up to this and they are astounded. I think it's fair to say many of them are honestly astounded. They're not faking the astonishment. But there's a second issue going on here, and that is that many on the left are trying to marginalize the new Speaker of the House, and they're trying to mobilize public opinion against him, simply by describing him, dismissing him, seeking to discredit him by speaking of him as an extremist. But here's the other problem. If he's an extremist, there are those who agree with him. And that means tens of millions of Americans. But frankly, as loaded as the word extremist is, well, you've got people who are willing to go further. For example, columnist Jamel Bowie, also with the same newspaper, the New York Times, ran a piece. It's about the election of Mike Johnson, as Speaker of the House. And the headline is, quote, a right wing fever dream come to life. Now, that's very expressive language. What exactly does fever dream mean? It means delirium. It means a form of delirium which is excusable because you have a high fever. It would otherwise need some explanation, perhaps in mental illness or psychosis. This is a direct assault upon the Speaker of the House as being a right-wing fever dream come to life. Now, you could also just flip that and say that this is an acknowledgment that the election of Representative Mike Johnson as Speaker of the House is a fever nightmare for the left, and thus they're responding in just this way. But again, this means that we are the enemy if Mike Johnson is the enemy. And there are those who would say, well, at least part of that has to do with his association with Donald Trump and uh, his advocacy of certain issues after January 6th 2021. yep yeah, but the problem with that, that's not an irrelevant issue, just looking at the totality of someone's political life and influence. But the point to make is that so many of these people who are writing about Speaker Johnson as a right wing fever dream come to life or someone who's a full on extremist, you need to see they're really talking about his position on marriage as meaning the union of a man and a woman. They're talking about his defense of the unborn. They're talking about his association with conservative Christianity. They're talking about his defense of religious liberty. The new Speaker of the House, we are told, quote, holds radical views, end quote. Now, in a conversation with Sean Hannity on Fox News, the new Speaker, referring to his worldview, just referred viewers of the program to the Bible. He said, basically, you read the Bible, you'll find my worldview. Now that set the liberal world absolutely on fire. Frankly, there's plenty of evidence for this, but I want to point to just a couple of examples. Number one, the Washington Post columnist Jennifer Rubin in her program known as Jen Rubin's Green Room, she said this, quote, this guy is a religious nut. And by that, I mean, he subscribes to all the extreme Christian nationalist views, which is number one, There should be no abortion nationwide. Ban number two, he's continually, I don't want to say discriminated against, but certainly supported measures that have an adverse effect on LGBTQ Americans, end quote. So I just want to make the point. You heard this in Jennifer Rubin's own voice. She describes the new Speaker of the House as holding to all of the extreme Christian nationalist views. What are the two things she mentions first? Abortion and LGBTQ issues. So when people say it's about something else, no, it's not about primarily something else. It is about exactly what they are focusing on here. It's about how they define what they call Christian extremism. The word extreme is here. The Speaker of the House, quote, subscribes to all of the extreme Christian nationalist views. And the first one she mentions is the cause of the unborn. So that's what it takes these days to be classified as a Christian nationalist who holds to all of the extreme Christian nationalist views. You advocate for the unborn. You advocate for a biblical understanding of sexual morality. You're against drag queen story hour. You don't believe that children should be subjected to these things. You have absolute confidence that a boy can't be transformed into a girl and a girl can't be transformed into a boy. Well, guess what? You are holding to all of the extreme Christian nationalist views. It's just a package that underlines where we stand in this culture every day. Jennifer Rubin, by the way, speaks of the new speaker as, quote, a nut. Here's what she says. He's a nut. That's the kind of language that's being used by the left. Quote, and this bodes very well for the Republican crazies. For the rest of us, it's very bad news because we will have a shutdown unless saner voices prevail. End quote. So there you have it. There are the sane people and the insane people. As for the new speaker of the House, because he is a clearly identified Christian, quote, He's a nut. But then for a second example, let's turn to Jen Psaki. She was the White House Press Secretary, the first to serve in that position under President Joe Biden. She's a pretty well-known fixture in Democratic politics and pretty much of the political left. She has her own program now on MSNBC, simply known as Inside, with Jen Psaki. And, well, Jen Psaki made her own comments. First, however, she played a clip from a statement made by the new speaker in an interview at the rival Fox News. And in that interview, the new speaker said, quote, I'm a Bible-believing Christian. Someone asked me today in the media, they said, it's curious, people are curious, what does Mike Johnson think about any issue under the sun? I said, well, go pick up a Bible off your shelf and read it, that's my worldview, end quote. So the new speaker of the house said, if you want to know my worldview, pick up a Bible, look at it, that's my worldview. Well, then Jen Saki responded to her listeners with this, quote, you heard that, right? the Bible doesn't just inform his worldview, it is his worldview. She continued, quote, in fact, during his first speech in his new job, Johnson suggested that his election as speaker was an act of God. Talk about a bit of humble brag there. Quote, so what exactly has God apparently called on Mike Johnson to do? She continues, quote, well, his views on policy are essentially what you'd expect from a religious fundamentalist. They're more divisive than they are divine, end quote. Well, isn't that divine? Here you have the former White House secretary, telling us two things. And let's just note, there are two things we're being told here. First of all, what did the new speaker say? And then secondly, how has that made people go crazy? Because that's what we're looking at here. Here is what the speaker said again. He said, if you want to know what my worldview is, quote, well, pick up a Bible off your shelf and read it. That's my worldview, end quote. That was enough to tell Christians exactly what Christians would want to know about his worldview. That doesn't say everything about his policy on incremental tax reform. It does tell us about his convictions on the most basic issues. And when it comes to the left, well, first of all, the most dangerous word in their view that the Speaker of the House used was actually Bible, telling people, pick up a Bible. That's my worldview. Well, you might as well say, pick up a cobra or pick up a Nile crocodile, because that's basically revealing that to this crowd, a Bible bites. It's going to hurt you. Put the thing down. Don't possibly claim that the Bible represents your worldview. To skip back to Paul Krugman,
3: that makes you an extremist.
1: Coming up, Israel at war.
3: The Bible says that there is a time for peace and a time for war. This is a time for war.
1: When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment.
5: As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu.
0: Do you hear that? That's
6: the sound of holiday joy at the Home Depot, where you can find everything you need to get ready for the holiday season, like all new festive outdoor decor. Spread more joy this season with holiday decor that is uniquely you, like our new three and a half foot Santa and Elf Inflatable, each just $19.98. Available in-store and online.
7: Get holiday ready right now at the Home Depot. How doers get more done.
1: Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. Israel is at war. For over three weeks now, they've been making progress in their effort to defeat and destroy Hamas. The pressure on the IDF and political leadership in Israel is enormous. This week, Benjamin Netanyahu, Israel's prime minister, addressed his nation.
3: I want to make clear Israel's position regarding the ceasefire. Just as the United States would not agree to a ceasefire after the bombing of Pearl Harbor or after the terrorist attack of 9-11, Israel will not agree to a cessation of hostilities with Hamas after the horrific attacks of October 7th. Calls for a ceasefire are calls for Israel to surrender to Hamas, to surrender to terrorism, to surrender to barbarism. That will not happen. Ladies and gentlemen, the Bible says that there is a time for peace and a time for war. This is a time for war.
1: Among the pressures on Netanyahu and political leaders in the war-torn nation is the very nature of their enemy. The terrorist group Hamas that has governed Gaza since 2006 really hasn't governed at all. They've taken billions from Iran and set up what is little more than a terror state, complete with hundreds of miles of tunnels. The problem? Hamas has very deliberately used the civilian population as a shield. Jerry Bauer was a guest of John Hall and Kathy Emmons on Word 101.5 FM in Pittsburgh. Can we talk about uh, just the latest developments in the conflict? Your thoughts, your overall impressions, maybe?
4: Well, my impressions are that, you know, obviously we have yet to see, you know, the full force of the counterattack, and it's largely been a, a waiting situation. And even already, there's sort of a a growing sentiment that Israel is a perpetrator rather than a victim, and that the main objective here, the humanitarian objective, the, the good outcome, is essentially to restrain Israel from responding. And I think we're kind of missing a certain moral clarity here with the nature of these attacks. It is fully appropriate that a nation state such as Israel retaliate in a way that sends a message, do not do this again. Mm-hmm. There has to be some kind of deterrence. That's really the point, one of the main points of warfare. And you might say, well, under Christian you know, view of warfare, you know, we just defend ourselves. I, I don't think that's really true in the sense that just the barest defense isn't adequate. The, the part of defense is deterrence. So if a nation attacks another nation, If there's an invasion and the defending nation simply pushes out to their border, just gets the invaders out, that's not the end of the job. The end of the job is to create the conditions under which they will not be unjustly invaded again, which can go as far as deposing the government of the other nation. So I think there's this sense that a lot of the world is not going to back Israel as this really gets rolling because I think they've lost a sense of what is required in terms of justice. It's more than just ending the attack from Hamas. It is deterring the future attacks. Right,
7: And that's a big problem, right, Jared? Because Hamas is essentially using the Palestinian people as human shields. And of course, how do you go after Hamas? It's kind of like a needle in a haystack in a way. I would imagine that they've left the territory or they are so far underground in this maze of tunnels, difficult to ferret out.
4: Yeah, it really is. And this is one of these really tough moral areas. And there can be a tendency for those of us who are essentially siding with Israel. And I want to be clear, that doesn't mean automatically siding with Israel. That doesn't mean always siding with Israel. We don't owe that. I mean, we owe allegiance to our nation. We owe allegiance, first of all, to God and to the kingdom of God. But you know we as Americans or as American Christians we don't have to have some allegiance to the state of Israel when it acts rightly it deserves our support and when it acts uh, badly it doesn't in this case i think it clearly is justified in the actions that it uh, it has taken and is and is about to take but if you if you go back to, Christians have thought about this for a long time christian just war theory says you're not allowed to target those who are noncombatants but then it recognizes that there's a problem. What about people who hide behind non-combatants? And I think there's a tendency, maybe for those of us who are supportive of Israel, to say, "Well, you know, that's how it happens. You know, no big deal." It is a big deal when Palestinian non-combatants are killed. Yeah. But that's a different question than putting the blood on the hands of Israel. If I hide behind a child to shoot at children. I'm responsible for what comes after. And if the child that I'm hiding behind, if their life is lost, that blood is on my hands. So Hamas is guilty of the civilian casualties that will come, unless, of course, Israel specifically targets civilians. That has not been their policy in the past, and I don't expect that to be their policy. There are times in warfare where there's been targeting of civilians, and I don't think targeting of civilians is morally legitimate under um, biblical revelation. But when civilians are unintentional casualties of the fact that some people hide behind them, there is blood guiltiness, but the gl- blood guiltiness is on those who hide among the civilians. Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, it's just, it's an incredibly sad time to be alive.
4: It really is. Um oh, it's I'm, horrible. It's, it's just horrifying awful. to think about what's happened and about what's going to happen. And we can't minimize that. Those of us who are saying, yeah, Israel's justified in waging war against Hamas can't just say, well, they asked for it. A lot of people who didn't ask for it are going to get hurt. But that's the nature of war. And the question is, who's guilty of that? And the answer is the people who invite warfare into civilian regions. I think Israel's going to do what it can to minimize civilian casualties out of conscience and also out of, you know, respect for the opinion of nations. So the more civilian casualties there are, the more BBC and Reuters and the international press, which doesn't like Israel very much, the more – I mean, they're going to show every dead Palestinian innocent. Mm-hmm. And that over time, that's going to erode international support for Israel. So Israel both has moral reasons and – practical reasons for it to try to minimize civilian casualties.
7: Yes. What's surprising to me, though, and of course, people of a certain age is the rapid rise or perhaps it's just been underground of anti-Semitism that is sweeping the world. You see this coming out now, even more virulent, you know, because of what's happened with Israel and Hamas than ever before. Shocking that here we are. You think, oh, the Holocaust never again. But it feels as though it's at our front door again.
4: Well, yeah. I mean, that's what happens when you see the Holocaust never again. And a bunch of people say, what do you mean never again? It never happened in the first place Right? because they want to deprive the Jewish people of the victim status that comes from the show show-off. It comes from that attempt at genocide. Uh, so the Christian nationalist movement is out there playing the anti-Semitic card and the progressive Marxists are also playing the anti-Semitic card. So the hard left and the hard right of essentially if, the, if there's one thing they can agree on is the Jews are the problem. And um, that's a terrifying thing to see. The other terrifying thing to see is how out in the open it is in prestigious institutions like Ivy League universities. Yeah. yeah, They're not ashamed. They're not hiding under a rock. You know, they're not sort of doing like secret handshakes. We all know who the problem is. I mean, they are out, completely out on this. Now, somewhat encouraging is that a lot of institutions are saying, hey, thanks for letting us know who you are no job offers from us, Mm -hmm. (laughs) don't apply here. Uh, And a lot of donors to these Ivy League institutions uh, who I think foolishly gave to these institutions not understanding what they're giving to are now withholding money. So that the center is kind of holding against this extremist stuff, but it's bigger than it's ever been in my life. There are more overt anti-Semitic extremists on the left and the right than I've ever seen in my life before. Coming up, this is the first scapegoating account that admits that the person killed is innocent. More with Jerry Bauer
1: when The Christian Outlook returns in a moment.
5: Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. In just 10 minutes, I can zip through 10 stories that help me start my day and help shape where I go with The Mike Gallagher Show. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to Daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's Daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's Daybreakinsider.com.
1: Since 1981, Unbound has connected people like you with families worldwide on their self directed paths out of poverty. A brighter future is possible for these families when we all walk together. Sponsor a child today and you'll help a family take the first steps on their path. Change their future in just one click. Start walking with your new friend today at unbound.org
5: walk.
0: When I grow
2: up, I want to work for a woke company, like super woke. When I grow up, when I grow up, I want to be hired based on what I look like rather than my skills. I want to be
6: judged by my political beliefs. I want to get promoted based on my chromosomes. When I grow up, I want to be offended by my co-workers and walk around the office on eggshells and have my words policed by HR. Words like grandfather.
1: Welcome back to The Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. I'm Georgine Rice. At the time of Jerry Bauer's conversation with John and Kathy, he was preparing to participate in a conference at Catholic University of America this weekend. It's about the gospel. It's about Christ, the one who bore it all for our sake. Let's pick up on Jerry Bauer's conversation with John Hall and Kathy Emmons.
7: What is a political atheist? I mean, considering what's happened in Washington, D.C. these past
1: six hundred years. I mean, I just I feel like I'm going to vote for it. I don't I need some kind of place to go.
7: Jer, this is very interesting. Talk to us about yeah, this. About, political uh, atheist. Yeah, about I
4: like that. Um, yeah, there's a uh, there's a, uh, a conference uh, next week at uh, Catholic University's uh, Bush School And um, I'm on a panel there talking about political atheism. So this is the 100th anniversary of Rene Girard, who's not well known. He's a Christian anthropologist who I think really had a great deal of understanding. He he talked about what he calls the scapegoat mechanism. And the scapegoat mechanism, Girard says, that all ancient pagan societies are based on the scapegoat mechanism. The idea is that all societies have conflict with one another. So they fall into different camps. And then the camps fall into camps. And then there's this rearranging of the camps. And, you know, alliances are shifting. And it takes on a momentum of its own. It takes on a conflict of its own. Later on, Gerard came back to his childhood faith. So he had had been raised as a Catholic. He became an atheist. But the more he studied ancient paganism, the more he came back to Christianity. And he calls this spirit of conflict Satan. Uh It's people are always accusing one another and Satan, a shatan is an accuser. So they're accusing one another. And then you have this contagion and then eventually it spills over into violence. And eventually somebody says, well, you know what? We never had this problem until those Jews showed up or that gypsy showed up or, you know, that old lady who lives at the edge of town and she's doing things with herbs. I heard she was a witch. And then they all come together and they kill that person. And that, that, and that ancient paganism is based on the human sacrifice of some outsider. Sometimes, usually an outsider, sometimes it's a king. So human sacrifice is the basis of this. And then after that, in order to keep the peace, he basically turned that person into a god. And you say, well, they were really guilty, but look how we're together. We're not mad at him, we're, we're, we're at unity with one another. And, he's, and basically for Gerard, this is where the ancient pagan gods came from, out of this system of human sacrifice. So basically, so wait, let me say- back you up, Jerry. So the scapegoat who they kill over time ends up
1: kind of morphing into a godlike figure?
4: Yes, exactly. Uh, think about Hunger Games. Yep. At the end of each day, what do they have? A tribute to the fallen, right? They become sacred figures because their killing united the society. And now that, yes, they did bad things, that's what they're, they're accused of doing bad things. So Oedipus killed his father and had sex with his mother. So it was right that he was killed. So what Gerard says is all these ancient pagan societies, they have to pretend that the person is guilty even though they're not. So there's a lie and that all ancient mythology is based on the lie. They're basically justifying their human sacrifices. And that this is what the state is built on. This is what nations are built on. The story of Romulus and Remus, what happens? Romulus draws a line. He says, everything inside this is my city. It's Rome. No one steps over it. And then Remus steps over it and Romulus kills him. And that's the founding of Rome. A biblical example is what do we have? Cain kills Abel. And then what what does he do immediately after that? He founds the city. So that the city is built on murder, on human sacrifice. But it's covered up. The story is always told that that person really deserved it. And so that's the lie. And then Gerard, you know, he sees this in ancient pagan societies, and he says, well, now I'm going to go after the Bible, because he got a lot of this human sacrifice stuff in the Bible, too. And I'm going to tear that apart. And he reads the gospel accounts. This is him as an atheist. He reads the gospel accounts, and he says, wait a minute. This is the only account that tells the truth. Nowhere in the gospels is it suggested by the narrator that Jesus is guilty. He's innocent. This is the first scapegoating account that admits that the person killed is innocent. Mm. And by so doing that, the whole system is unmasked. Mm. And the, the basis of the whole ancient pagan order is unmasked. And then wherever the story is told in the future, uh, the story of the gospels, people say, well, wait a minute, just before they throw the stone at somebody, at some other tribe or some poor you know, stranger who has a limp and kind of comes into town. There's always something, there's always a limp or they're missing an eye. They have to be a little bit different. They stop and say, well, wait a minute, maybe this is an innocent person. They killed that Christus, you know, in the story that the missionary read to us. Maybe this is another innocent person. Maybe this person is, doesn't deserve murder. Um, and so that transforms and that basically creates Western civilization with our concern for victims. So what Gerard goes on to say is essentially state, state politics is based on this scapegoat mechanism and politics always to some degree involves this and that the more it involves it the more it becomes a religion of its own coming up at the root of every commandment
6: is god's love and his desire for us to live the best life possible when
1: the christian outlook returns in a moment stay with us
5: As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu.
1: Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. The turbulent times we're living in could very well act as a catalyst to get us back to the book, the book above every other book, the Bible. I sincerely hope that that will be the case. We need the Bible. We need the Redeemer. And we need to yield ourselves once more to the directives we find in God's Word. Robert Jeffress has written a new book, The Ten, as in The Ten Commandments, The subtitle, How to Live and Love in a World that Has Lost Its Way. The voice of Pathway to Victory was a guest on my program. Now, I think for many believers, um, the Ten Commandments seem almost irrelevant. There are elements of it that we resonate with, but we imagine we are under grace. We're not under the law. Therefore, these commandments, while they're good, they don't necessarily apply to us. First of all, what are some of the common misconceptions about the Ten Commandments? And let me just offer one, and that is that it's restricting, that if we... Uh, this is designed to prevent us from enjoying life. That it it's the designed to prevent us from pursuing things that uh, that might interest us. What What was the original intent? It was not to restrict us. It's to what? To
6: bless us, uh, not to oppress us, but to bless us. These were given for our benefit. It's the way to have the kind of life God wants us to experience. I mean, for example, I mean. The, commandment, uh, uh, you shall not commit adultery. In Hebrew, it literally says no adultery. Now, Georgine, most people think about God as some cosmic killjoy who's trying to rob us of any happiness Mm -hmm. in life by putting all these restrictions around us. But think about it. God is the one who designed the whole idea of sex. He's the one who gave us bodies to enjoy a sexual relationship. But he says, now, here is how sex operates the best, between a man and a woman in the security of a marriage relationship. God gave that so that we could enjoy the gift he gave us, not to try to repress us from enjoying uh, uh, that kind of activity. And so, again, people need to rethink their thoughts about God in many ways. I think it was A.W. Tozer who said, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us, and we have a God who is not trying to keep good things from us. That's what Satan tempted Eve with in the garden. The reason God doesn't want you to eat from this tree is because He doesn't want you to be like him. He's paranoid. He's trying to rob you of something wonderful. And of course, the opposite is true. Mm.
1: So it's a form of arrogance when we disregard or disobey the Ten Commandments, imagining that we know better than God or misunderstanding uh, his intent in guiding us in the way that he designed us to function the best.
6: That's exactly right. And he knows, for example, material possessions. He says, don't steal. He knows that the way we uh, enhance our self-esteem and feel feel fulfillment in life and satisfaction is by acquiring property, by earning it, not by taking it from others. At the root of every commandment is God's love and his desire for us to live the best life possible.
1: In the book that we're talking about today, The Ten, uh, you share some ways that we break the Ten Commandments without even realizing. What is What are some of the ways that we do that?
6: Well, let's take the command, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, we usually think that's referring to cursing. You know, you never should say the GD phrase, which is true. You shouldn't do it, but not for the reason people think. Uh, one of the Old Testament scholars who's a member of our church translates that verse, do not use the name of God needlessly. You know, God's name was so sacred, the Hebrews didn't even pronounce Mm -hmm. the name Yahweh. It was such a reverent name. And it doesn't have to be just through a curse that we take God's name in vain. When we try to manipulate other people to do something, we want them to do by saying, now God told me, Uh, Congregation that we're to build this building. Well, I better not say that unless God really told me that, or God told me I'm supposed to marry this person or that person. Uh, That's taking God's name in vain. Something I did and really didn't think about it until I studied it more is uh, telling jokes that have God as a part of the joke. You know, we've all, many of us have done that before. Uh, Two guys died and went to heaven, and God said to them, blah, 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 blah. That's taking God's name in Mm. vain. We're not to take God's name and use it needlessly.
1: So we are to reverence him in however we make reference to him. And I think sometimes we're so casual, we imagine that Jesus is just our best friend, and we can pal around without really considering (laughs) the holiness of God, the the complete otherness of God, and how um, the righteousness we Uh, experience is the righteousness that we have inherited rather than um, that we've generated on our own. It's a very sobering thought.
6: That's right. And you know, another example of ways we violate the commands without thinking about it, thou shalt not steal. Now, he's not just talking about don't get involved in those smash and grab crimes that we've been watching department stores being looted. No, there are a number of ways you can take something that doesn't belong to you. By not working, you know, a full eight hours a day, giving you your employer what they're paying you for. Employers can rob their employees by not paying them a fair wage for what they do. Uh, There are a lot of ways we can steal without even knowing it. Same thing with murder. You know, we think as long as we don't shoot somebody in the head, we're... Uh, free of violating that command. But Jesus said, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. I say anyone who hates his brother has committed murder in his heart. Uh, God not only condemns the act of murder, he condemns the attitudes that lead to murder. So, um, you know, a lot of people will check off these commands and say, well, I haven't done the overt behavior. But God is just as concerned of, about the hard attitude that leads to those acts of disobedience. It
1: seems to me that when we understand the full breadth of these commandments, we not only learn something about ourselves and our inability to keep those commandments apart from the in, um, inner work of the Holy Spirit, but it also reminds us of the holiness of God that we so often forget. He's he's serious about these matters, and his standard is is far higher than ours uh,
6: ever will be. It is, and you know, James uses the example, the analogy. He says, the Word of God, the commands of God are like a mirror mm. that show us how dirty our faces are, how much we need to be cleaned. Uh, when you look into a mirror in the morning, the mirror can reveal the dirt on your face, but it can't cleanse you of that dirt. And it's the same way with the law. The law uh, can't be obeyed perfectly. And that's why Jesus Christ came to pay for our sins, uh, to take the punishment we deserve for our sins. What the law does is it reminds us of how dirty spiritually we all are and how much we need Christ's forgiveness. Coming up? Jesus, he said, man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. We'll continue with more from Robert Jeffress when The Christian Outlook returns.
1: Stay with us. AM radio provides always on news, sports, talk, traffic, and weather reports. And it's also a vital service that provides important emergency information when your community needs it most. Tell Congress you need AM radio to stay in your car. Because when cell phones and the Internet are down, this free emergency service is critical. And when you don't have electricity, radio in the car is often your only lifeline. Text AM to 52886 and tell Congress we need AM radio in cars. This message furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. The Sabbath. Now, when people think about the Ten Commandments and the degree to which they are or are not binding on believers today, they often go straight to the fourth commandment, Exodus 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Let's pick up on my conversation with Robert Jeffress. I want to ask you about the fourth commandment that has to do with the Sabbath. How are we to, if in fact we are, to observe that Sabbath rest in the fourth commandment?
6: Well, even though the day has changed for the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday, the principle is still the same. We need 24 hours a week in which we don't work or even think about working that we renew ourselves spiritually and emotionally and physically, and that is by taking a Sabbath day. And I think, Georgine, the biggest misconception people have about the Sabbath is it's a list of what you can't do on Sundays. And uh, Jesus denied that idea of the Sabbath. He said the Sabbath, uh, man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. God gave it not for his benefit, but for us. And so, you know, what I remember when I was growing up, I grew up as a Southern Baptist, and the most debauched thing anybody could do on a Sunday was go to a movie on Sunday afternoon. I mean, that's silly when you think about it. The bigger principle is we need a day for worship, we need a day for rest. And that's why God said, Work six days a week, just like I did in creating the world, but take a day off.
1: What are some of the ways um, we as a nation have walked away from the guidelines that God clearly set before us? The Ten Commandments used to be posted in a classroom. They were referenced. Now they are rejected and, um, you know, focusing away from them is celebrated. What does it cost us and what do we need to do to turn things around?
6: Well, You know, for the first 150 years of our country's history, the Ten Commandments were not only allowed to be displayed, they were taught and memorized by students. I mean, it was not even questioned. But about 60 years ago, uh, secularists started saying, well, we can be good without God. And so there was a rampant move to try to remove God from the public square, outlawing prayer in 1962, Bible reading in 1963. But the culminating case, Supreme Court case, was 1980, Stone v. Graham, which the Supreme Court said, not only can you not teach the Ten Commandments in a Kentucky school, you can't even post the commandments because if school children read them, This is what the Supreme Court said. If school children read them, they might revere the commandments and obey the commandments. And this is not a permissible objective under the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. I mean, it's just, well, (laughs) ludicrous. How's that That working out?
1: (laughs) Thank you for joining us for the Christian Outlook. If you enjoyed the program, take a moment to sign up for our podcast at christianoutlook.com. Our program has been brought to you in part... Through our partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. For executive producer Russell Shubin and producers David Puchan and James Blend, I'm Georgine Rice. Join us again next time for the Christian Outlook.